Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter number 15, Luke chapter 15, and while you turn there, I do want to wish you a happy non-binary glasses-wearing left-handed indigenous people's day, amen? And uh, we got an email from the federal government this morning that we're supposed to wish you that, and uh, somebody said something about celebrating fathers or some other nonsense, I don't know, but we uh, we're thrilled that you're here today. And uh, trust that you're excited to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. I, I know, Ken, you celebrate privately, but that's all right. You can, you can still be a part. And uh, so we're, we're thrilled that you're here. And uh, I want you to be sure and come back tonight in the Lord's house. We, we are going to be having service tonight. and going to be having a time of fellowship. I already called your daddy, and he said that's fine for you to come back. Amen. So come back and be with us in the house of God this evening. Luke chapter number 15 I'd like to read a very familiar passage of Scripture, uh, beginning in verse uh, number, uh, let's see, let's start in verse number 11, and we'll read about these two boys, and I want to really focus for a moment this morning on the father in this story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter number 15, verse number 11, the Bible says this, and he said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. No man gave unto him. When he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you this morning. Lord, we do thank you for what we're celebrating this day. We thank you for godly fathers. 
Lord, this world can't function without godly fathers. Lord, I pray that You'd help me to be the father that You've called and commanded me to be. And I pray the same for every single person in whose life You've given some sphere of influence over a child, Lord, uh, be they a father or a grandfather, Lord, or an uncle or a cousin, but You've given them some influence in some young person's life. I pray that these men would stand tall, would gird themselves, Lord, I pray that they would be the kind of men that you'd have them to be. Lord, help us as we approach your word this morning that we might have our hearts both humble and sincere, open, honest, and receptive, that we might hear your word and that you might touch our lives. Lord, we'll be sure to thank you for what's accomplished. wouldn't be a surprise on a Father's Day Sunday morning for there to be somebody here lost. Lord, if that's true, you and you alone know their hearts. I pray that you'd show them they're lost. And I pray they not leave here until they bowed the head and heart before you and bowed the knee and accepted Christ as their Savior. Lord, I love you. Thank you for being such a good father to me. Thank you for being a sweet, precious, heavenly father. Thank you for always meeting my needs and being faithful, never changing. Lord, thank you for chastening me when I need to be chastened, comforting me when I need to be comforted, giving me courage when I need courage. Lord, you're just such a wonderful father. And I'm so thankful for you this morning. Pray that you'd bless now our time together. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 15 contains the parable of the prodigal son. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture, no doubt. Probably everybody in this room has heard it preached on, not just once, but multiple times. And in this passage of Scripture, we often focus our attention on the youngest son. We talk about his dark and, and, and dismal journey into the far country. We talk about his foolishness and folly. We talk about the, the, the deception that he experienced. And we talk about the depravity that he put, was put through. We talk about his time spent in the hog pen. We talk about his brokenness and his return back to the Father. And then there are times when we preach on this passage that we give a little bit of attention to the elder brother or the elder son. We talk about his bitterness and his petulance. We talk about his unwillingness to rejoice in and celebrate in the return of his brother. But this morning on Father's Day, I want to take a few moments and consider and weigh on the topic of the father in this passage of Scripture. Now, to understand the text that we have read today, there's three important truths that you need to understand about this passage. Number one, this passage is a parable. Say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, a parable uh, is a story that the Lord Jesus would tell to illustrate scriptural truth. They were crafted in such a way that if a man did not want to hear the truth, then it would be completely lost upon them. You know, the Bible says about the Lord Jesus uh, that a, uh, a, a smoking flax he would not quench and a bruised reed he would not break, that he wouldn't cry aloud in the streets. You know what that means? That means he ain't going to make nobody believe. Oh, help me on Father's Day now. I could hear some fathers say amen this morning. That comfort my heart a little bit. He ain't going to force nobody to believe. He's not going to make you believe, and he's not going to make me believe. And he did not beat people with his dogma and his doctrine, but rather he presented it to them in boldness and in clarity, and it was up to them to receive the truth that had been given unto them. Hey, if the Lord Jesus couldn't make somebody believe, we ought to recognize we can't make somebody believe. But what we can do is preach the truth in boldness and in clarity. And so these parables were crafted in such a way that if all a person wanted to hear was a story about two boys and a father and nothing more, well, they could listen to it and hear that and walk away thinking they had understood. 
But it was also crafted such that if a person wanted to hear the truth of God in it, then they would see in it more than just a story about two boys and about their father. It would be hard really to overstate the depth and dimensions of this parable. It probably more predominantly deals with God's dispensational dealing with Israel and with Gentiles and their relative relationship and attitude towards God than it probably does anything else. Probably in many ways the younger son is a picture of the lost Gentile world. Or we could use the term the church. It's a picture of us as Gentiles that have received Christ and have been brought into the family. Though mankind departed from communion and fellowship, though mankind left the Father's house at the Garden of Eden. Hey, thank God uh, that man uh, was brought back to God through God's goodness and grace and mercy. When he was brought back, God did not see him with a scowl or with cynicism. But hey, he slayed the sacrifice so that we could have fellowship with him. In many ways, the elder brother is a picture of Israel in her unbelief and unwillingness to come into the house and her unwillingness to see the goodness of the father. But even he in mercy and impatience entreats uh, the elder brother and eventually he's brought in to the party. He's brought in to the house. Man, thank God one day eventually uh, Israel will be brought in. Amen. God's got a plan for them. So there's probably the primary application dealt with Israel and with the church, with a dispensational perspective. But of course, as we read this passage of Scripture, it should not be lost on us that we also find in it not just a parable, but also a picture. A picture of God dealing with the lost and wayward sinner. A picture of a precious, loving, heavenly Father that doesn't throw the clay away and cast us aside, but maintains hope and faith in our soon return and our complete restoration. See, when I read this passage, I I don't just see a younger son, I see me. And when I read this passage, I don't just see an older son. Hey, I also see me. And when I read this passage, I don't just see a father, I see my heavenly father and how he deals with us. I would say there's not only a parable here and a picture here, but because it's a picture of God and his relationship towards us, in many ways, this passage is also a pattern. I want to preach to you this morning on this pattern. You see, in this passage, God illustrates for us a pattern for fatherhood. And I would not necessarily say it is exhaustive. It's not meant to be. It's not the primary application of this passage. But I can't help but look at this scripture. Think about what a precious heavenly father I have. I can't help but look at this passage and see that the Father handled everything correctly every step of the way because He pictures God who only doeth well and who has handled everything correctly every step of the way in our lives. And as we read this passage of Scripture, I'm chastened and I'm convicted and I'm stirred to think about my own failings, my own flaws, my own shortcomings as a father. And here's what I think. I think if we look at how God dealt with the sons in this passage, I think we'll get a better idea of how we as fathers ought to deal with our sons. Now again, it's not exhaustive. and We won't comment on everything that could probably be said. But in this passage, we see a father dealing with three types of sons. And we see his careful, consistent care. And we see his providential wisdom in how to bring them to an expected place. And can I say this? Hey, listen, uh, the younger one may have got out for a while. The older one may have been out while he never left the house. But by the time the whole thing's done, they're both in the house with their father rejoicing. 
And let me say, man, I thank God that failure is not final. And we may have kids that have gone astray. We may have kids that have messed up. We may have kids that have made mistakes. But don't give up on them. Hey, God ain't done with them. God has a plan for him. I want you to notice these three truths and then we'll be done this morning. The first thing I want to consider is how the father in this passage dealt with the youngest son. And primarily how he dealt with him before the younger son left the home and in the process of leaving home. Both of my boys are young. One is five years old. The other is nine years old. I have not entered the tempestuous teenage years. I know it's coming if I don't kill him first. And I've tried to ready myself for that day. I've learned not to laugh whenever people have a hard time with teenagers because I'm going to have teenagers one day, amen, and God just has a, a poetic sense of humor sometimes. And I'm sure that even at their young age, I, I, I sense a willfulness and a, a craving for self-identity that was not there, particularly in my older son, uh, when he was younger, and, and, and I mean, we're just on the cusp of those days where I've got to deal with eye rolls and sass and attitude, and, and they'll either kill me or I'll kill them, one way or the other, come to the funeral, amen? But when I read this passage of Scripture, I take heart and I take encouragement, because in it, I see how he dealt with a bucking son. I tell you this, we better learn how to deal with our kids, not just when they're sweet and kind, because at some point they've got to wake up, Amen? We're going to learn to have to deal with them when they're difficult. Again, I'll not say that I am an example of this. I've not walked this path yet. Nor will I even say this passage is exhaustive. But I find three principles here that when our children are seeking to go their own way, that we ought to embrace. Notice number one this morning. Consider the sacrifice that the father gave. Verse number 12, the Bible says this, that the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Now, of course, in this verse, what is transpiring is the younger son comes to the father and says, I want my inheritance. But I don't want to wait till you die. I want that inheritance right now. Hey, by the way, and I might just preach two sermons at the same time this morning. If I do, you just be a little bit patient with me. You know, in our life, all of our trouble comes from loving something more than we love our heavenly father. All of our problems come from loving something more than we love Him. And, and you know, Abraham learned a great gift when he learned uh, to love the, the giver more than the gift and learned to love the Lord uh, more than he did the land. And when he learned that it wasn't about what God can give you, it's about who God is and our relationship with Him. And in this passage, the younger son makes the fatal flaw of valuing the inheritance over his relationship with the Father. And so he goes to him and he says, Daddy, I want my inheritance now so that I can leave and go spend it. I want you to notice this simply. He gave it. He gave it. Now, I hope my parents are listening real close to this right here. Amen. He gave it. You say, preacher, what are you getting at this morning? Well, I want you to notice this. In the last phrase of this verse, he divided unto them his living. We could say it this way. He gave his livelihood. He gave his living. Hey, I don't think it'd be inappropriate to say this. He gave his life to this son. He wanted the son to understand that though the son may have loved his goods more than his father, his father did not love those goods more than he loved his son. Can I tell you one of the greatest things we can do for our children is love them more than we do the stuff that life throws at us? 
How can we expect our children to grow up with a value system where they value the things of God more than the things of this world when we prioritize the things of this world even above them, not even to mention above God Himself? And I will tell you this, the first step you can take in reaching your child is to invest your life into them. This had to be a hard decision for this father. It was a sacrifice he was making. He was going to have to do without, but he was willing to do it. And I'm certainly not suggesting that we should allow ourselves uh, to become prey for the willfulness or waywardness of our children. But I am saying this, if you're not sacrificing for them and pouring into their life, they're not going to care much what you have to say. We live on this on this day of Father's Day, and for some people it's a joyful day, and for others it's a sad day. There's people that have daddies they should be able to call that they can't call. There's people that have fathers and grandfathers they should be able to that they can't today. And the truth of the matter is, probably those fathers have no influence and no sphere in their life. And I'll tell you this, listen, as a daddy, how can we expect our kids to have any interest in anything we say if we won't pour our lives into them? Say, preacher, that's pretty soft preaching this morning. (coughs) Preacher, what about when they're doing wrong? Preacher, what about when they're snotty? What about when they're smart aleck? What about when they're rebelling? And we'll see the stand that the Father took here in just a moment. But let me just say, before we ever get to that place, we find in an example of God Himself a picture of this truth. God could have sat up on the ivory throne of glory and stubbed up and said, I'll not give them a thing. They're ungrateful. But instead, our sweet Heavenly Father gave of His only begotten Son that we might be saved. Not Listen, not when we were friends with God. I mean, this is a funny thing. The world's perspective on, on, on regeneration and on getting born again is that God picks out the best that are closest to being saved and pulls them over the finish line. That's not what your Bible teaches. The Bible teaches want none of us close. The Bible teaches we were all dead in trespasses and sins. The Bible teaches that all of us were estranged from God, that we were alienated from God, that we were the enemies of God. God could have sat there and said, well, mankind, you've messed up. But instead, He gave of Himself that He might reach us. The truth is, if we love our children the way that we should love our children, we will give of ourselves to them. I see in this passage, consider the sacrifice that He gave. But then notice verse 13. Say, preacher, He'd do anything so that His son would stay. Well, obviously not. Because verse 13 says this, not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. This is an interesting passage of Scripture. I don't imagine necessarily, and we understand this is a parable. This is not talking about literal people, and the Lord never presented it as talking about literal people. But I think it is, it is a fair assumption that the perspective he expected his hearers to have was of a Jewish home, of a Jewish family, of people in the land of Israel. And when you read the Word of God and you read the character of Israel throughout the Old Testament, and even at this very moment and at this very time in our Lord's earthly ministry, I would suggest this. You didn't have to leave Israel to find riotous living. And if this little village was like most villages, you didn't have to leave the driveway to find riotous living most of the time. So you say, well, preacher, what are you getting at? Here's the thing the younger son understood. He understood if he wanted to waste and destroy his life, he was going to have to leave his father's house to do it. Notice not only the sacrifice he gave, but I want you to consider the standards that he kept. Here's where his line was. I cannot stop you, but I will not let you do that under my roof. 
I can't force you to make right decisions. God's, for some reason, given even stupid people agency. I can't force you to make a right decision. But I can tell you I'll have no part in your decision. This isn't my message, but I think about the donkey that carried Balaam in the book of Numbers. And I think about that donkey who had more sense than the prophet of God did at that time. He could see the destruction. He could see the angel of the Lord standing with sword in hand in front of him when Balaam himself was blind to it. And the Bible describes how that that donkey was carrying Balaam. And when he saw the danger that was ahead, the donkey stopped and refused to carry him any further. Balaam began to whip on that donkey and he began to move a little further. And eventually he went and he ran into a wall on the side and injured Balaam's foot to try to stop him from going any further. Balaam begins to beat on him and cuss at him. And so finally the donkey just lays down and says, I'll not go a step further. Balaam thought he was dealing with a stubborn donkey until that donkey began to talk at him. (laughs) And Balaam then begins to have an argument. And by the way, when we're out of the will of God, we're irrational and we'd even argue with a donkey. And he begins to have an argument with this donkey. And the donkey says to him, I was trying to protect you. I was trying to shield you. I was trying to keep you from it. And here's essentially what the donkey did. The donkey said, we're headed for destruction. I won't carry you there. We're headed for destruction. I'll even hurt you to try to get your attention to keep you from going there. And finally, the donkey says, if you're going to go, I'm not going to go with you. Can I say, as we deal with children that are on a path set towards waywardness, we don't have to be ugly. We don't have to be cynical. We don't have to be cruel. We should not be unloving. But if we really love them, we won't carry them to their destruction. We won't carry them down the path of ungodliness. Hey, listen, I, I want you to hear me and hear me well. In, in a world that labels everything tolerance and everything love, it is not love to assist someone in their own destruction. It's not love to carry them down a path where they'll be met with heartache and despair And I see that this father, in dealing with this wayward son, he loved him, he showed love to him, but he said, I will not allow that to lower my standards. I will not allow that to wreck my home. And don't you imagine he also was mindful that there was an older brother that was watching all of this unfold. Likewise, there were servants that were raising their children that were watching all of this unfold. Likewise, and the father said, I'll do anything for him, but I will not go with him. The two things he refused. One, he wouldn't let the riotous living into his house. And two, he wouldn't accompany his son into the far country. Let me tell you, we are duty bound, fathers, to not allow riotous living in our home. We are also duty bound to not go with them into the far country. Oh, preacher, you don't understand. God does. And God held this same standard. I see the standard that he kept. But then notice verse 17. I like this. Little time has passed, the money's run out, the friends are gone. The Bible says this younger son, verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now, you say, preacher, I don't see anything the father did in those verses. That's all about this conversation, this inner monologue that the son is having with himself. And you're absolutely correct. The father didn't do anything in verses 17 through 19. He didn't have to because of what he had already done. 
consider not just the sacrifice he gave and the standards that he kept, but consider the stamp that he left on his son. Consider the impression that he left on his son. This son, when in his brokenness, he turns, he repents, he's in his right mind, the first thing he thinks about is two truths about his father. Can I tell you, listen, young person uh, or old person, I don't care, everybody listen, all right? Sometimes I've been at camp, amen, young person, young person. If I say, look up here, we ain't taking notes, you'll know I'm, I'm just in camp mode, all right? Don't get mad at me. But... If we're really, hey, if we're what we ought to be, the first thing, whenever they finally come to themselves, they'll think of is us. I found this to be true in my life. And I, I and it's sort of a sad symptom of adulthood that I find myself drifting out of it. But even today, when I have a need, the first thing I think of is to call my father. The first thing that penetrates my mind is I wonder what dad would say. I wonder what dad would think. I wonder what dad would do. And the first thing this boy thought of when he came to himself is what will my father say about all this? Notice there's two prevailing thoughts that he has. Number one, he's reminded that it's better at the father's house than it is in the far country. How many of my father's, uh, uh, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? Let me say this, that as fathers, one of the things that we should strive to do in raising our children is leave upon them the distinct impression that our uh, home is a place where they can find refuge and where they can find help. Again, we'll not allow them to live their riotous living under our roof and expect assistance in it. But the first thing he's reminded of is, man, my father has every resource that I need. I see not only he was reminded how much better it was, but he was also reminded how welcome he would be. I'll tell you what I would have thought, and I guess, I don't know, I guess this daddy's better than my daddy. I have no idea. Because I would have probably thought, if I go home, he's going to kill me. But this son says, no, if I go home, he'll let me come back. If I go home, he'll let me come back. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. We have to guard our home. We have to guard our home. And we should not allow destructive forces to bring destruction into our home. And at no point did the father say, Son, you live any way you want under my roof and you bring anything you want under my roof. But he did set this standard. The moment you're ready to get right, you're welcome to come home. Hey, thank God if we'll get right, we can come home. Let me just say to you as a child of God, if you'll get right, you can come home. God won't let you live wrong and come home. He won't let you have peace at home if you're not living right. But if you'll live right, He'll let you come home. And in this passage, I see that the Father, He refuses to turn His home into a den of iniquity. He refuses to walk the path of His wayward child. But nonetheless, He has loved Him and left Him with the impression that if He lives wrong, He'll have to do it somewhere else. But if He'll get right, there's a place for Him at the Father's table. I see how He dealt with a bucking Son, But, you know, thank God it doesn't end there because this son does return to the father. And we find in it an example not just of how he would deal with a bucking son, but also in how he would deal with a broken son. Let me say this. There's a difference in how we deal with a child that is rebellious and a child that is returning. I thought there was a church out there. Is there somebody... 
Maybe I'm hallucinating. I might still be in bed this morning. I don't know. Is any of this real? You with me this morning? There's a difference in how we deal with a rebellious child and how we deal with a returning child. There's a difference in how we deal with a rebellious child and how we deal with a repentant child. See, repentance purchases to us a certain liberty and a certain comfort and a certain welcome that waywardness robs us of. That's the reason even in your relationship with God, until your pride is humbled and until you'll confess that you've messed up, you cannot have the fellowship with God that you desire. Because contrition, hey, listen, the Lord, the Lord loveth a contrite spirit and a contrite heart. If we're not willing to be contrite, then God can't have fellowship with us. But the moment the son is broken, we find that there's a change in how the father dealt with him. Notice verse number 20. Notice with me, number one, how he remembered him. The Bible says this, he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. Now, I'm trampling on well-trod ground at this passage. And I'm not going to belabor it because you've probably heard 30 sermons on what I'm about to say. But I just want to notice two things in how he dealt with him. Notice, number one, he did not give up the farm in the absence of his son. When the son wanted to come home, he knew how to get home. Can I say a lot of what is afflicting a younger generation is an older generation that has sold their farms. They're not in the same place they were when they was raising their kids. All of a sudden, their convictions have softened. Their standards have lowered. Things that at one time they were willing to separate over, now they don't even blink at. And it has left an entire generation of young people cut without sails adrift in a tempestuous world because the principles they were raised believing were right are now all of a sudden thrown out the window. Listen, we better, we better stay consistent if we want our kids to know where to come back to. It breaks my heart and I see this all the time with older pastors and preachers, and it's not all of them. Thank God for those that stick by the stuff. But you see a lot of them that all of a sudden, man, they hit like their their early 60s and their numbers start to dip at church and everything goes a little stale. And next thing you know it, there they are up there in torn jeans and, and, and tennis shoes and, and having rap concerts and taking Baptist off the name of their church and having light shows and fog shows. You say, what happened, preacher? Those preachers sold the farm. They all of a sudden got a little nervous because numbers dipped a little bit and tithes dipped a little bit. Instead of sticking with the stuff, they threw it all overboard to try to rescue the thing. And then you say, well, preacher, what's wrong with that? Well, there's a lot wrong with it. But let me tell you one of the things wrong with it. Every young person that grew up in an old-time youth group with, with, with a pastor that stood for what was right is all of a sudden left wondering if it was all a big scam in the first place. His father, he, he did not give up the farm. He did not sell the farm. He didn't leave the farm. He stayed in the same place. And if we want our kids to know where to come back to when they get right, we better stay in the same place. He didn't give up the farm. But then notice number two, he didn't give up his faith. Now, you know this. Every preacher I've ever heard preach on it has pointed it out. But I just want you to notice that before he ever got home, the father saw him. It implies what? It implies he's looking for him. It implies he anticipated his soon return. It implies that he never gave up hope that he was going to come back. I understand there comes a place where we have to jettison naivete. I understand there's a time we have to sober up 
and protect ourselves and our home from children that would seek to destroy it. But likewise, we should still never be willing to give up hope that a precious, powerful, personal God can work in their lives. We should never say there's no way, because with God there's always a way. There's been people I've seen in my life, and for some of them it took decades, but eventually God got a hold of them. And I, I just loved this father. He just, he never gave up. I, I notice how he remembered him. Notice number two, how he received him. Verse number 20 goes on to say this. His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. I see how he received him. Not with a cold shoulder, not as David did Absalom in the Old Testament, banishing him from his presence, unwilling to hear him, unwilling to hold him. But our Heavenly Father, when things were made right, things were made right. I'm glad when we got saved, we didn't, we didn't just reach tier one of a multi-tier system. When we got saved, hey, we didn't just reach uh, level one of multi-level marketing. We didn't just reach level one uh, of the initiation process. Man, I'm glad when we got saved, we got it all. I'm glad when we got born again, we got, we got made right, reconciled, justified, and adopted into the family of God. When this father receives him back, he does not do so uh, with any trepidation. I noticed two things about it. Notice number one, he showed him compassion. The Bible uses that term compassion. And then it describes the compassion. The compassion involved running, falling on his neck, and kissing him. In other words, he encountered him, and he embraced him, and then he showered him with affection. You see, once he was willing to get things right, the father no longer guarded his heart from him, but instead he embraced him totally. I see that he showed him compassion, but then verse 21 is funny. I've always, you know, I've preached on this and I've always sort of said tongue in cheek. The father didn't even hear him because verse 21, the son makes this confession. Verse 22, it says, but the father said to his servants, and it's almost like he wasn't even willing to hear what he had to say. But really, if we're being explicit in the interpretation of the Bible and the reading of this text, it is there. He did listen to him. He didn't cut him off. He didn't say, don't say that. Instead, he stood there, and I would say it this way, not only showed him compassion, he heard his confession. Now, it's obvious the father did not listen to the confession for his own benefit because he then completely disregards and dismisses what the son asks. He doesn't say, okay, well, go take you up, get your bed in a servant's quarter. Don't call me daddy anymore. I'll just call you servant. No, he restores him to his previous position. But he does listen. You know why? It wasn't that he needed to hear it. It was that that son needed to say it. The son needed to admit that he was wrong, admit that he had hurt his father, admit that he had done him wrong, admit that he had gone the wrong direction in his life, that he had hurt his family and destroyed his family. And listen, let us never dismiss the potency and the relevancy and the essential quality and nature of confessing what we've done wrong. Listen, part of you getting right is admitting you was wrong. Uh, Christianity today wants to somehow be made right without admitting they were wrong. That's part of the reason that they're gutting the gospel of the cross. 
gutting the gospel of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and trying to reimagine Jesus as some hippie guru that goes around teaching people a brighter, more enlightened way. And that's not at all who the Son of God was. Hey, listen, he wasn't a guru. They called him rabbi, but he wasn't even really a rabbi in the technical sense. He was a Savior, he was a Messiah, and he was a sacrifice for our sins. And the reason that people don't like that concept of a Savior is it implies that they're a sinner. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. And we'll never meet the Savior till we're willing to admit that we're sinners. I will tell you that in our relationship with our children, they have to make it right. But hey, listen, when they're making it right, we ought to let them make it right. We ought to let them make it right. I'm petty. You ever been so mad at your kids you didn't even want to hear them apologize? I have. I'll say so. You don't have to admit it. That's all right. You keep your father of the year tie. That's fine. I'll admit that I've been so mad at my kids, I didn't even want to hear it when they wanted to apologize to me. That's petty, but it's the truth. You know, so often in our lives, in a broader, deeper sense, maybe out of fear of hurt, maybe out of just resentment, kids can hurt you. You listening? If you If you don't believe me, God bless you. I hope you never learn it. But I pastored enough people to tell you that kids can rip your world in two. And sometimes if we're not careful, we will allow the hurt that we've experienced to rob us of the grace that we need to see him restored. I see that he heard his confession, but then I want you to notice not only how he remembered him and received him, but notice how he restored him. I like this. Verse 22, he robed him. The Bible says the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. If I'm not careful, I'll preach a whole nother sermon just in this verse. So I'm trying to restrain myself. But I would just simply notice this. He endeavored and sought to restore to him the things that his own bad decisions had robbed him of. I don't think he left the father's house naked. I don't think he left the father's house without a ring. And I don't think he left the father's house without shoes. I think they is laying in some gambler's uh, hideaway somewhere down in the far country. I think maybe they is laying uh, in the treasure chest of some liquor dealer or some prostitute's house. I think they might have even been sitting uh, on the mantle of the citizen that had took him into his employ. But at the end of the day, none of that mattered to the father. It didn't matter what he had lost. It mattered what he needed. And he says, whatever is possible to restore, I want to help you restore. I'm glad most of us survive our first stupid years. A lot of people don't survive their second or third stupid years, but I'm just glad. I'm glad I don't have to do without everything that I sold cheaply in the far country. I'm glad I don't have to walk around and my life is not defined by my dumbest moments. And you better thank God your life is not defined by your dumbest moments. And I think part of emulating Father, the God in fatherhood is recognizing that it's not just possible, but it's appropriate that if, that if it be possible, that we seek to see restored the things that were lost. And I'm glad to report to you there's some things can be restored. They can't unsee what they've seen. They can't undo what they've done. They can't unhear what they've heard. And they can't unsay what they've said. But thank God there's life beyond mistakes. There's life beyond failure. Part of fatherhood is seeing them past that to a day when they can serve God in dignity 
and, and in grace. I see he robed him. Then I like verse 23, he rejoiced with him. I, I've sort of been of two minds about this passage. Pray for me. I'm a double-minded man, unstable in all my ways. But I've sort of had two opinions about verse 23. The Bible says that he says, Bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. So there's two perspectives here. And I think both of them have sort of important application. But what is that fatted calf? The terminology fatted calf usually denotes an animal that had been set aside for the purpose of sacrifice. And it is likely that what is meant by the Savior's explicit words here is to show in that fatted calf a picture of himself who had to be sacrificed so that both the younger brother of the church and the older brother of Israel could be restored to a right fellowship with their father. But it's also possible... I think even appropriate to recognize that in the context, they don't seem to be killing it to go to church. They seem to be killing it to go to the dinner table. And he says, let us slay, let us rise, let us eat, let us be merry. Sounds like my kind of party. Amen. He says, let's have a barbecue and let's celebrate the return of this son. I just noticed this. He robed him, but then number two, he rejoiced with him. He didn't treat him in a dour or sour way. But he said, son, I'm thrilled that you're home. (laughs) Life's hard enough. Life's hard enough without us giving up opportunities to rejoice in the Lord. It's part of the reason I don't want to be around some Christians. They're miserable all the time. They're so miserable they make me miserable. And I'll tell you, life is hard enough without us griping all the time. And life is hard enough without us missing opportunities to praise Him. It's part of the reason I think every opportunity we get to praise Him, we ought to do it. Because there's times we have to praise Him against our circumstances and we're duty-bound to do it. But if we can praise Him with our circumstances, bless God, we should. And whenever this son returns to Him, He treats Him with gladness and He rejoices with Him. And it's 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 a joyful thing when people get right with God. Now, it's going to take some humility to rejoice with people getting right with God. You're going to have to take all that ammunition, all them rocks you was going to throw when they came back. You're going to have to take all those I told you so's and find some place to bury them. But I'd a lot rather rejoice with them when they get right than rail on them when they get right. I see he rejoiced with them, but then I, I like this. He reinstated him. And I almost hesitate to even use that language because at no point in this passage did the son quit being a son. But notice what the Bible says. The father stood up in front of all those servants. Now, they knew what had happened. They had known this boy since he had been a young child, and they had seen him walk down that driveway, a different young man than the broken man that came back to them. Whenever they saw this happen, here's what the father did. He turned around and he looked at all of them. I like this, my son. He was dead, but he's alive again. He was lost. But now he's found. And they began to be married. Hey, listen, let me just pause for a minute and say, if you're here lost without Christ, you want to know how to be made right with God? The Bible says in the book of John, to as many as received him, to them gave him power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name. It was a precious thing when I got up from Calvary and God said, this my son, this my son. What a blessed state it is to be able to say, I'm his son. And he's my father. But I want you to notice that when things got right, things were made right. 
And he did not give to him or attribute to him some second class status. But rather he said, son, if you've got it right, then you can come back home in the full status of your position. Man, I love it. I see how he dealt with a bucking son. I see how he dealt with a broken son. But finally, and I'm done this morning, I want you to notice how he dealt with a bitter son. Let me say it this way, a son that is struggling. I don't mean one that has departed the father's house and wandered to the far country and is living it up and, 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 and living the devil's life. I, that's not, that's not, I mean, I'm talking about a son that's struggling. One that's struggling to understand what's going on in his own life and the lives of others. And I'm thankful to report God is a good heavenly father, not just when I'm wayward, but also when I'm wondering. Not, not just when, not just when I'm sinful, but also when I'm struggling. Listen, not, not just, not just when I, I'm compromised, but also when I'm confused. He's a good heavenly father. Let me say part of the skill set of being a father like our heavenly father is learning how to guide and govern and comfort and direct our children when they're struggling with the realities of life. Notice three things here and I'll be done. Verse 28. I keep saying that and you keep believing it. Why do we do that? Verse 28 says this. And he, the elder son, was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. I want you to notice three things he did to this bitter older son. Notice number one, he came to him. Do you see the petulance of the son? He was angry and would not go in. I've been there before. Yeah, you ever, you ever been mad and you didn't want to get over it yet? Your, the, the, the time on your mad meter had not expired and you just weren't over it yet? Here they all are having a party inside the house, rejoicing, man, having a good time in the Lord and what God's done. And he's sitting out here miserable and angry and refuses to go in. By the way, let me just say that, uh, bitterness will ruin your party. It'll make you a miserable person with a miserable life that wants nothing more than to sit outside with no company but your misery. And that's where he's at. Here's where the father's wisdom comes in. He knows if he's waiting for that son to just get over it and come in the house, that's never going to happen. And so in his patience and love and mercy, we see not just the petulance of the son, but we see the patience of the father. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. Now, lest you think that's soft preaching, can I just remind you that's what God did for us as lost sinners? Angry, alienated, estranged from God, no way to get in the house, no way to make it right, no way to be right, but thank God that when I could not get to me, to Him, He came to me. Thank God when I had no way to get to Him, He made a way to me. And He didn't just leave me in that situation. He said, I'll come to you, I'll rescue you. And I will say that part, I think, of our responsibility as fathers is being sensitive to the struggles of our kids and being willing to be proactive in seeing them ministered to the truth of the Word of God and the realities of His promises. Who's going to teach your kids the Bible if you won't teach them the Bible? You think school's going to teach them the Bible? Uh, Listen, we got good Sunday school teachers, but they only got them for about 45 minutes a week. Who's going to teach your kids the Bible if you won't teach them the Bible? You're going to have to go to them and entreat them. You're going to have to go to them where they're at and deal with them where they're at. I see he came to him. Then notice verse 31, he comforted him. It says this in verse 31, he said unto him, Son, that's a precious word, isn't it? Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. 
Time would fail us to say everything we'd love to say about it. But I just notice, and, and I'll go ahead and tell you, I'll give you a sneak preview of the next point. Here, here in verse 32, he corrected him. But before he ever corrected him, he comforted him. He understood that there were some things his son was struggling with, and he sought and endeavored to see him restored and comforted about those matters. What did he comfort him with? Notice number one, he comforted him with his presence. Son, thou art ever with me. Again, I almost feel like we're just water skiing over the greater, deeper theological truths, but I'm trying to do it deliberately. I want you to see these truths in this passage. Of course, there's a precious truth here about God's relationship with Israel. Of course, there's a precious truth here, even of us as saved church members, when someone is getting reconciled to God and and getting their life right with Him about our attitude and our perspective. But I just want you to notice the thing you needed to hear more than anything was that the nature of his relationship to the Father had not changed. Can I say in your life and in my life when we're struggling, the primary thing we need to be reminded of is this. Everything may be changing, but God does not change. He comforted him with his presence. Then notice number two, he comforted him with his position. He says this, all that I have is thine. I don't know if the Father had gotten any more wealthy in the time being, but what he wants to remind his son of is that the wastrel years of his younger brother did not in any way diminish the promises that his father had made to him. Oftentimes, when we're bitter and angry in life, we feel we've been robbed of something. Can I tell you, the things that God has vouchsafed to us cannot be taken from us. And we need to be reminded, he reminds him with his presence, he reminds him with his position, all that I have is thine. He came to him, he comforted him, but then notice... Finally, in verse 32, he corrected him. He says this, It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now, this may not seem very significant to you, but I want you to notice not just what he did do, but what he did not do. He did not pull his son aside and say, You know, I understand why you're feeling this way. He didn't pull him aside and say, well, son, everything's so hard on you. Bless your heart. He didn't pull him aside and say, son, what a victim you are. Life's been so unfair to you. He pulled him aside and he said, now, son, listen, you know that I love you and you know nothing is ever going to change that. Now, quit sulking and go in the house and eat a ribeye. He's not willing to indulge his petulance. He's not willing to indulge his victim mentality. He's not willing to indulge his bitterness. But instead, he corrects him. And notice the two things he corrects him about. Number one, he corrects him about his attitude. He gives him an attitude adjustment. Not like my daddy used to give me, but it got the job done. He corrects his attitude. He says this, it was meet that we should make merry and be glad. Can I just put that in in East Tennessee, Appalachian American language? Son... You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong for being angry. You're wrong for being bitter. You think it's inappropriate we're rejoicing. What's inappropriate is you out here sulking. Your attitude is wrong. Your spirit is bad. Your disposition is rotten. You need to fix your attitude. Some of y'all are having flashbacks. You heard that a lot growing up. Better fix that attitude or I'll fix it for you. We all need an attitude adjustment every now and then. I'm glad our Heavenly Father knows how to adjust our attitude. 
But let me even go a step further and say this. We're doing no favors to our children when we indulge their fantasies and delusions of victimhood. We're not doing them any favors when we make them feel like a persecuted class. We're not doing them any favors when we indulge their irrational complaint. What we're helping them in is instead giving them a right perspective on their life and on the experiences that they're encountering. One of the greatest things you'll ever do for your children is tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. Don't baby them. Don't coddle them. Tell them the truth. Uh, one of the things me and my, my wife's smarter than me. By the way, you ladies come out to my wife's house on July 8th. That'll be a blessing. I've been there. It's, it's, it's nice. And, uh, my wife's smarter than me. You know, one of the things my wife told me when we had children, and I believe this is true. This isn't a, a judgment on you, by the way. I don't really care what you do with your life for the most part. But <laughs> one of the things she told me when, whenever we had Lawrence, whenever we had our youngest, I, I remember I did what everyone does because we are born with this in our DNA. I picked him up and I immediately started to talk baby talk to him, you know, a little voice and stuff. And she stopped me. She said, don't talk to him like that. And I said, what do you mean? He's a baby. That's how you talk to babies. Where have you lived? What's the matter with you? And she said, don't talk to him like that. It, it, it hinders their development. Instead, talk to him like they're a person because they're a person. They're going to spend a lot more of their life listening to people talk to them normally than listening to them talk to him like that. Now, I want to see if you can follow what I'm about to say because this isn't about the inflection of your voice when you talk to your kids. It isn't about baby talk when you talk to them when they're babies. But you understand there's a parallel to that truth, right? If you treat them like they're babies, they will grow up and expect to be treated like babies. You know what's wrong with our world today is generations of kids that were raised to believe that the world would treat them as kindly as their parents did. They started with the baby talk when they were little and they never quit. And they have conditioned and raised them to believe that somehow the world will accommodate their neurosis. When the reality is this, the world's not going to accommodate you or me or anybody else. So here's what we ought to do. We ought to instead give them a right perspective of biblical truth and of the world around them. I see that he, he corrected his attitude. Uh, but not only for his attitude, he corrected him for his animosity. It's funny that the, the older brother, when he's talking to the father, he says, thy son. Did you pick up on that? He says in verse 30, as soon as this, thy son. But notice how the father answers him in verse 32. He says, for this, thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. In other words, the older brother's saying, hey, that ain't my brother. That may be your son. It's like when you, when your kids do something, your wife says, your son did this. He's saying, your son did all these things. And the father gently reminds him, son, he ain't just my son. He's your brother. And you may not like what he's done. You may not understand what's going on. But the anger and animosity that you're feeling is not healthy. I'm glad God doesn't just leave us in our bitterness. I would. I'd leave you in your bitterness if I was God. <laughs> I'd leave me in my bitterness. Like, well, you want to soak outside the house? That's fine. More steak and potatoes for me. Thank God God's not like that. Instead, the Lord, He comes to us. He entreats us. He comforts us. He corrects us. He seeks to see us restored. Just as surely as the broken son, He seeks to see the bitter son restored. One of our responsibilities as fathers, hey, it ain't just to welcome them home when the world's done chewing on them. 
but it's to be sensitive to the spiritual development and growth of them as they're young. And to endeavor to be used of God to minister to them. Hey, they don't just need you when they've wrecked the car. They don't just need you when it's time for a cosign. We live in a world where that's all dads have been reduced to, right? A wallet and an ink pen and a phone number. But biblical fatherhood involves being more involved than just being the ripcord when things go sideways. And part of your responsibility and mine is to be daily invested in and involved in raising them up. Here's the Bible term in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They need both, friend. They need nurture and they need admonition. You know what admonition is, right? It's correction. You admonish someone. You're correcting them for where they've done wrong. They need nurturing, but they need admonition too. And I think when we see our Heavenly Father here, we find a divine pattern for fatherhood. I don't know about you, but if I could be a daddy like the daddy in this passage, man, I'd feel like I'd done something. And I hope in your life, whether your kids are grown, whether they're little, whether you've got grandchildren, whether nieces, nephews, or hey, maybe you're not even in that place yet in life. Maybe you'll never be in that place. But God has given you an entrance into some other young person's life to be an influence to them. We ought to all, in whatever ways that we influence children around us, we ought to be the fathers that God would have us to be. Let's bow together this morning. A musician's going to come and play. And I want to invite you, Karen, come play for us. I want to invite you to meet the Lord in the altar. You may be a father that needs to come and pledge and commit some of these things to the Lord. You may be a mother who needs to pray for your husband as he endeavors to do that. You may be a child that just needs to come and thank God for a godly father. But whatever way and whatever fashion God's dealt with you this morning, would you meet him in this altar? Let him have his will and way. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.